This is the Newcomer Podcast. We've got a special episode this week. I'm Eric Newcomer. On this episode, we've got the second set of interviews from the Cerebral Valley AI Summit that I co-hosted with my friends at Volley. First up, we've got Replit CEO Amjad Massad and Hugging Face CEO Clement Along in conversation with me. It's really a story of the war with Microsoft and OpenAI, the sort of open source alliance against OpenAI, which despite the name is not open source, so can be a little confusing there. But Replit is sort of the home for open source coding. Hugging Face is a repository for open source AI projects. And together, both companies are trying to compete against big tech and big supporters of open source. So that's the first half of this podcast episode. And the second is a conversation with Adept CEO David Luan and Greyluck partner Sam Motamedi. It was a fun discussion of both Adept, which is a fascinating company. It's got a different spin on the foundation model and some of Sam's perspectives, both on his investment in Adept, but also the broader AI market. We also dug pretty deep into OpenAI and Google, where David worked. I asked him whether he trusts OpenAI with the future of artificial intelligence, and I'll let you assess his answer for yourself. Give it a listen. Thanks to Samsung Next for being the presenting sponsor to the Cerebral Valley AI Summit. Samsung Next invests in the boldest and most ambitious founders. Tell us about your company. We'd love to meet. Reach out at samsungnext.com. I'm John Massad at Replit, Clem DeLong at Hugging Face. Thank you so much for coming on stage. We promised a spicy panel for the last one, right, you guys? I feel like OpenAI like, has loomed so large. And like in particular, you know, you're competing pretty directly, you know, Replit helping coders, competing directly with like GitHub Copilot and the sort of Microsoft, I don't know, powerhouse with OpenAI. Like how do you grapple with their sort of dominance in this space as a company? Yeah, I mean, initially we started building on GPT-3, like in like, we started building on GPT-2 actually in 2019. And in GPT-3, like early 2020, and like we were ready to go, but they weren't letting people like release applications. I don't know if you remember, but you had to go through this ethics board before you launch an open AI application at the early days. And, and, and so we're sort of like held back by some capabilities problems, by some of the economics, by some of the processes. At the same time, Microsoft was building Copilot. And so, you know, we were building, we had the ideas, we had the platform, we had everything. And it just became exceedingly clear to us, for us to actually compete, we can't build on OpenAI. So we started training our own models. We're a very small company, especially at the time, but we decided to kind of want to do that. You know, fork GPT-2, try to fine-tune that. Eventually, like, things kind of happened where Salesforce released this, like, co-generation model. Why did Salesforce, you know, train a co-generation model? Who knows? But turns out it's actually, like, pretty good. And so we did extra work on it. It was really slow. We improved its speed, like, two or three orders of magnitude. We hosted it, and then we built the front end around it and everything. Uh, And we started fine-tuning it based on our data, and we put it out to market, and we got a product out. But had we known that you know, it was going to be hard to build an OpenAI because of the relationship with Microsoft, we would have done that earlier. Like you feel like they unfairly blocked you? No, I don't feel like we unfairly blocked me. I feel like their deal with Microsoft just gives Microsoft an advantage. And if you want to compete with Microsoft, you can't use OpenAI. 
and we'll, we'll come back to Google soon. But what is your view on the state of like open source? I mean, we had, you know, a mod at stability on earlier. How strong as like sort of a, a system of options is open source today? Do you think we will see an open source version of ChatGPT4 soon or GPT4 soon? Yeah, I mean, to your first question, I think the domination of OpenAI is really overblown, especially here in San Francisco, in Silicon Valley. I was looking at it uh, yesterday since the release of ChatGPT, right, which is supposed to be this one model to do everything. We've seen on Hugging Face the release of over 100,000 models, right? So companies are not training models just for fun, right? Like they're training models because actually it improves their performance as I'm just described, even if there's one model from OpenAI right now that is like making the rounds and that everyone is talking about, ultimately what we're seeing is that for most companies, most use cases, when you want something that is fast, cheap, and works for your use case, actually companies build their own models. So small models can be fast, models. cheap, but can a small model be better than GPT-4 in a use case? In most use cases, yes. Not so much today on very general use cases. But in my opinion, that's fine. Because, for example, if you want to do a customer support bot, you don't really care about it telling you about the meaning of life or the weather in San Francisco, right? You want it to be really good at your specialized, customized use case. So there's all this hype around kind of like big generalist models which is interesting, it's good, it's powerful, it makes sense for use case like Bing, for example, because they want to answer all the questions in the world. But the truth of it is that for most companies, when they have a specialized use case, it makes more sense for actually for them to build their own models, train their own models. So in my opinion, in a few years, we'll just have a world where every single company is going to have their own GPT-4 or their own chat GPT. And that's what's going to allow them to build differentiation, to customize, to align these models with their own company values, right? And not rely right. on the OpenAI's values. In my opinion, that's a better world too. Okay, so you partnered with Google. Ben Thompson wrote in Stratechery that Google you know, should have acquired you and that in some ways not acquiring you was a strategic error. Did Google try to buy Replit? I, I can't comment on that, but we've been saying um, no. We've been saying no to acquisitions for a long time. I mean, we famously said no to a billion dollar acquisition like when we were like six people. Yeah, so, so is there a bigger number that's... I don't know. I mean, uh, do you have an offer? <laughs> <laughs> we'll take a look. But uh, no, seriously, like, I think the potential for Replit is really huge. And we're just getting started. We're just like warming up, and it just doesn't feel like it's the right time to do that. I mean, the partnership with Google will give us huge acceleration. It's like a very, very much win-win partnership. And so that's exciting, and we'll see what will that bring us. I mean, both of you are companies where I think people are really cheering for you, excited about the companies, and then they say to me, but like, well, ask them about the business model a little bit. Like, can you talk about like the hugging face business model and like how are you guys gonna make a lot of money? That's still an open question, <laughs> but uh, we're starting to show that we can do it. And the way we do it is very typical, I would say, of platforms with the high level of freemium model. Right? We have fifteen thousand companies using us today, and the percentage of them are paying us. So we have three thousand customers today. 
And they're paying us for premium enterprise features, right? So complex user management, for example. Or they're paying us for compute. They want to run Hugging Face on faster GPUs, faster, faster hardware. Like um, you strike a deal with someone who provides the compute and then you're sort of a reseller? Or what's your relationship there? Yes, we provide compute associated with the usage of the platform. So the overall model is, and I imagine it's going to be a bit similar for Replit, very similar to what a GitHub. GitHub has just crossed a billion dollars in revenue, right? So they're proving that this model works. And I bet most of it is compute, most of it is actions. Yes, yes. That's a bet, guess. Yeah. Where is Replit in the monetization? Yeah, we just released our pro plan, which is like $20 a month, which is exploding now. There's like a lot of latent demand, kind of switching from user growth and adoption to monetization. Turns out, wow, it's like, there's, it's like a lot easier than we thought. And it's cool that this climate kind of allows that, where, you know, it's like grow, 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 you know, be everywhere. So like, oh, maybe you should like figure out the unit economics and the business model. We actually like that now that we're figuring that part out and we're making a ton of progress on that. And so right now it's like more, you know, prosumer, individual developers and startups. A lot of YC startups are launching on Replit right now. Just yesterday there was a company called... It means uh, like they do all the coding in yeah. Replit. Okay. Yeah, they do all the coding in Replit and... A lot of them do like go to market on Replit. So Vocode, for example, yesterday is this you know conversational programming framework. They did their main launch on Replit. Another company called Leap AI did their main launch on Replit as well. And so the cool thing is that you can find your initial customer set in the same way that Hacker News used to be. That I think Replit is increasingly taking that place. And I think there's like like Hugging Face. There's tremendous opportunities for monetization. At the limit, we're probably a cloud company. Like, I think selling compute and selling cloud services is very attractive. And it also scales very well. Like, you know, consumption-based pricing is, is really attractive. What are the coolest projects on Hugging Face right now? Or just, you're, you're very in touch with, like, the, the cutting edge of AI. Like, what should people be watching there that you think really is sort of, like, the next thing? And what are you watching that's hosted on Hugging Face that you think's worth paying attention to? Everything but text. <laughs> right, like and it's kind of like with the OpenAI focus, like looking looking at text, but actually it's a very small subset of AI in general. And looking at what's everything everything that is not text gives kind of like a clearer picture of what is AI today. So, for example, I'm really excited this week about text to video. If you remember for text to image, there was the first viral model was called Dali Mini. We're at the Dali Mini time for text to video where you're starting to be able to generate video that kind of look bad. Right, that look, it look. looks amazing. I love the, the Will Smith eating spaghetti video. Yes. Did you see that? No. no. If yes. you haven't seen that, look it yes. up. You're yes. going to stare at it for an hour and laugh. Yes. yes. It's scary. It's disturbing. But uh, somebody just typed in text and this video was created. Exactly. It creates kind of And like this a, is open source? Or open some? source on Hugging Face, luckily. And the thing is, what's going to be interesting is that these first models are kind of like outputting very weird, very uncanny videos, but it's going to attract a lot of attention and really, really fast it's going to get better and we're going to get in a few months to the same level of quality that we're getting right now on, on text. So in a few months? Exciting. Yes, yes, in a few months. Anything that excites you in particular? Or? I bet like... It's just like the development of AI or like, thing, like projects that people are working on. Oh, well, you know, I, I think Nat Freeman put it as capability overhang. 
like I, I think the capabilities of the models on the platform right now are actually exceeded the product deployment. So I think there's like there's a lot more product to build until we catch up to the capabilities, right? So you know, on the sort of code generation side or coding side, like we think that as as much as Copilot is like amazing, we think it's like fairly primitive, you know, considering what we can build. The way Copilot works is that you add it as an extension to your editor, and it's sort of sitting there trying to predict your keystrokes, right? It's basically a glorified sort of typing aid. Whereas what we're trying to do with Ghostwriter, Replit's coding assistant, is like an actual agent that's sitting on your computer and reading your files, trying to make suggestions to your code, trying to learn from how you program in order to like automate things for you before you even say them. How far away is Replit being a coder itself, right? I mean, there's always this fear of like, the platform competing with the people who use the platform. But it feels like, okay, if I can be a great assistant to coders, someday your company will be a great coder. How do you think about just, yeah, sort of AI coding on its own, not as an assistant, but as an actual coder? Yeah, so I, I think that will happen. But, you know, that question is really a question about the future work generally. And I think what happens is a lot of the repeated stuff that we know how to do, we just train people how to do it, and people generally do it without applying a lot of creativity, that stuff gets automated, right? Because it's easy to automate. We have a lot of data, we have a lot of knowledge on how to do it. You don't have to write the like, you know, 300 trillionth left pad function, right? Like everyone writes left pad functions. And so this stuff will get automated, but what that means is that humans can go do more creative, more advanced things. And I think that's good thing about technology is that we automate the things that are automatable so that we can go on to creative things. I don't think we're at a point, and by the way, all the hype and all the excitement about GPT-4 and all that, and we're really excited about it. We're big beneficiaries of this whole thing, and people you know, go generate code GPT-4, put it in Replit, and run it. The reality is it's still not very good at completely novel code. Like if you're writing essentially like super novel functionality, it's like not as good at it as much as things that it's seen in its training sets. So I think we're very far from the point where you have a completely autonomous programmer. I think it's probably coming in the next couple of years where it will feel like you're coding with an assistant, but it's, it's a far cry from like automating all programming jobs. Is Hugging Face available in China or what sort of the breadth of open source and like how much do you think these open source AI projects are going to continue to be available all over the world? So personally, I think the main risk for AI today is concentration of power. These technologies are powerful and what we need for them to be sustainably deployed in our society is for more people to understand how they work understand what they've been trained on, and understand how to limit and mitigate them. So it's really been our mission to bring more transparency to the AI world, because otherwise you end up with a world where these technologies are built behind closed doors, and it creates these kind of like narratives completely disconnected to the reality, you know, like what... Amjad was describing is that they're kind of like glorified autocomplete 
And at the same time, in the public sphere, you see letters with people describing it as Robocop or these things kind of like that is going to take over and destroy the world. And in my opinion, it's created partly because there's a lack of transparency and education about how these technologies are built and how they work. By the way, a lot of the safety concerns come from hype. And, you know, a lot of these big companies are beneficiaries of hype. So they are, in a sense, beneficiaries of the anxiety, right? So, for example, Microsoft Research got an early version of GPT-4, naturally, and they wrote a paper calling it First Contact with Artificial General Intelligence. And then they commented that out, they left it in the latex, and then they changed its sparks of AGI, right? So they're using science and archive and research, and they put out a preprint, as a marketing opportunity. They're marketing the system as artificial general intelligence, and then they're feeding all the fears of the people that have been talking about the problems of AGI, and then it's creating a very toxic environment where for them it's marketing, but for a lot of people it's life or death. Right. Yeah, and I want to pull on that thread, but sorry, I just, but China, is it available in China? Yes, it's yes. available in China. And you're saying yes. it should be was really it your answer be. because yes. you want people to understand it. Yes. Okay, thank you. And then in terms of this problem of like, yeah, people are hyping, AGI is like possible. But then at the same time, you were sort of saying we haven't even fully seized all the benefits of the technology we have. So it feels like it does sort of swing back and forth from the same people where it can feel like, oh my God, like this thing, there's power we haven't even gotten out of it yet that we, we don't understand. But then at the same time, you don't want to overhype it. It's just hard for people to totally understand, yeah, what's next or sort of how much more powerful it can get. Yeah, but, but I think sort of like the companies calling it AGI is misguided. And like there's a definition of AGI and perhaps dishonest. And, you know, people have been writing about AGI for, you know, 70 years now, right? And so to call GPT-4 AGI is a huge stretch. I don't think even OpenAI wouldn't call it that, but Microsoft did, right? And then you have people who've been worrying about AGI, like Nick Bostrom, Elias Yurtkowski, and the Max Segmark that wrote the letter. And basically, you're telling them everything that you worried about, we just built, right? And then, of course, they're going to freak out. Right. Yes, I think the main challenge is that this future, forward-looking, futuristic, sci-fi-driven narratives, they blind us from the priorities which are mitigating the challenges of today. So, for example, at Hugging Face, something that we work really heavily on is to mitigate some of the biases in these models, right? If you give to stable diffusion prompt to create an image for a CEO, for example, it's going to create a man's face, right? And not really give you any, any woman faces. Yeah. And by kind of like picturing this Robocop thing, we focus the public narrative on something that hasn't happened, that might never happen, and we don't focus on the real challenges of today, like biases, like misinformation, like lack of transparency and control of power. So that's, in my opinion, why it's dangerous. What do you do about that? I mean, that's a great point. You pull down something that doesn't account for bias the way you want, you give feedback to the creators, or what's the actual like protocol for getting people to consider the bias? There are a bunch of different measures. 
we actually released three weeks ago bias detector for image generation models by a team member called Sasha in the Hugging Face team, which allows you to try to detect the biases of these models. And it's really useful for people who are underrepresented, for them to realize what kind of biases are there. And then we advocate for publicity of that from the model builders so that the companies that are going to integrate these systems into their products can take that into account. So, for example, if you take a resume classification model, right, to classify if a resume is good or not, or a candidate is good or not. If you see that it's biased in terms of like gender distribution, then you know that you're gonna not put that as the main filter and that you'll need human in the loop to make sure that it's not biased against women. So this is called model cards and data set cards. We have over 100,000 of them on the Hugging Face Hub. It's pioneered by someone called Dr. Margaret Mitchell, who was the co-founder and co-lead of the AI ethics team at Google before, who's now at Hugging Face. So that the builders actually take that into account when they build their products with this technology. I mean, you both have expressed concern about you know, the centralization of power within AI. Is the answer only everybody else needs to get really good at it? Or like, is there anything to be done about, yeah, I mean, are you advocates of like, legislation? I don't know. Are you starting to talk to members of Congress or it's just everybody needs to outcompete them? I, I actually worry about that. So I worry about regulatory capture. You see a lot of the big players are already going around and... and Please regulate see. us in a way Please that might help us. them. Yeah. In the history of, of regulatory capture, it shows that you know, that's what you do. That's the rational thing to do. When you get big is to, you know, you pull out the ladder, right? So I worry about that more than anything else. And I think the Again, this codependence, this hype slash fear is playing into the hands of those who want to create regulatory capture, right? So you create more anxiety and therefore people ask for regulation and you're like the hero. Oh yeah, let me, here's, we already wrote the regulation, you know, which basically says no other startup could compete. But I think open source is like a great way of doing that. And I think like, you know, to Clem's point, Open source is actually like a great way to also stress test these systems and also create systems that protect us from the negative harms. Like, there's a lot of systems right now built around stable diffusion to detect stable diffusion images, to kind of do reverse stable diffusion, show what the sources are, and credit the artists. There's tremendous amount of innovation in open source around safety and security and all. That. Do you do you agree with that view that regulation would basically help? Microsoft and the incumbents and therefore against it? Or do you have a point of view there? It's a complicated question. I think we're in a fast evolving field that needs some regulation. And I think for me, the most important thing for good regulation is that the regulators can understand the systems, which sounds challenging today because it feels of like the they barely understand Facebook, the idea that they're going to understand, yeah, ChatGPT or whatever. Uh, yeah, it's different between kind of like the previous generation of tech and the new generation of AI, in my opinion, because in traditional software, because it's rule-based, you can kind of like test a product and understand how it works. For AI systems, the creators you can don't even test know. it. You can test it for a day, for a week, for a month. 
it doesn't lead you to really understand it if you don't have access to the data set, if you don't see what it's been trained on, how it's been trained on. So in my opinion, for the AI era, we really need to advocate and push for more transparency because that's how we're going to... Into what people are training on. Yes, Okay, I'm, I'm going to open up to a question. What's your partnership with Amazon? Or how, how serious is your relationship with Amazon? Pretty serious. We've been working with them for, uh, for three years. We are a platform, so we are also working with all the cloud providers. But uh, we've had a very fruitful collaboration in kind of like making it easier for companies to use open source plus AWS to build AI systems internally. Questions, questions. Great, yeah. Hello. I feel like there's this tension between, you know, we want the open AI and the big companies to be more transparent, but then we also are concerned about proliferation and bad actors being great. Let me take that model and go do something evil with it. And, you know, the good guys are like, we need more transparency, but we need more responsibility. And I, I just haven't really seen how you reconcile, like just open everything up, but also, you know, gatekeep access so that bad actors don't run away with these things. Yeah, there's a very good paper from uh, someone called Irene Soleiman, who was actually at OpenAI before and who's at Tugging Face right now, on the different risks and challenges of different release strategies. It poses different challenges, right? When you keep it closed source, behind closed door, you create concentration of power, you make it more difficult for civil society, underrepresented populations to participate, for regulators to actually regulate. When you make it more open and more transparent, you are more inclusive. You, in some way, reduce the risk because you create power and counterpowers at the same time. So even if an actor, which is by definition much smaller than the actors who control it right now, right? Because right now it's the biggest players, right, that are controlling, the biggest companies, the biggest governments and, and countries. So actually the risk of having smaller players misuse it is counterbalanced by the fact that you can create the counterpower to actually mitigate these, these risks. I know it's not always straightforward, but if you look at kind of like the long-term safety of the development of a technology, more openness and more transparency is actually much more sustainable in the long run and creating much less risks than keeping this power in the hands of the very few number of big companies. Great. Hi there. I just have a question for Amjad, actually. Replit has emerged as this like huge AI power player. So kudos to you, building your own models, Ghostwriter. It seems quite different from the initial focus of Replit as really an educational tool and specifically a tool for people learning how to code. It seems like the initial audience was beginner developers, and now it's actually very advanced, sophisticated developers who want to pull in the latest AI. And so I'm just curious how you feel about that and like, what is Replit? Is it an ed tech company, an AI company? What was the plan and kind of like what happened there? Yeah, our plan from the start is to build an end-to-end platform for software development. Like our sort of North Star since day zero was idea to product. So like, how do you have an idea in your head 
and how do you like put out a product out in the shortest amount of time possible? And so initially, okay, what's the first hurdle to that? It turns out the first hurdle is setting up DevOps environment. So we solve that, we put that in the cloud. And then, okay, what's the second hurdle of that? Well, the second hurdle is like hosting the code somewhere or, or running the code. So we solve that. And by the way, along the way, it turns out these are enormously valuable for education. Education was somewhat of a focus, but it was sort of an accidental kind of product market fit because we just wanted to solve a problem for developers. And then along the way, it turns out that like AI, actually someone tweeted out our pitch deck from 2016 and had like a master plan in it. The second plan is like, once we have a lot of users, we're going to train these, all these models and help people code. And so when we started looking at, especially GPT-2, it was pretty obvious for us that we need to invest in this because, again, anything that shortens the distance between an idea and a product is something that we're going to invest in. So the long-term plan of Replit is like, you have an idea and you talk to your phone and you create an app and like, you know, an hour later you have your first paid customer. That's really the North Star. Yes. <laughs> you, can, you can see my writing going back to 2012. So. The last question for the conference, urge the audience, like what would you have them work on? Or like your time's limited. Like there's so much excitement now. If you could say like, go work on this small, large, like what would you charge people to chase after? For me, I would urge everyone to start working on biology, chemistry with AI. I think it's an underfunded area that could be really beneficial for the world in the next, next few years. Well, I, I think um, building like, the original kind of vision of, of Siri and Alexa and these things, now it's possible. And especially with the open source models that are small, you know, Whisper and Llama and Alpaca and, the, and these things, and also like building educational programs. So just like putting these things on a smartphone. So try to figure out how to put a large language models on a smartphone. There's a lot of interesting work in open source. We were just talking about a guy in Bulgaria who like not part of the like Silicon Valley elite, you know, found Llama on the internet and did this process called quantization. And now Llama runs on a, like a seven billion parameter model runs on a Pixel 6 phone. And so imagine like now like a sort of a kid in Africa being able to learn English by talking to Llama on their phone. I mean, that's pretty freaking amazing. You know, and I would love to see not just open source, but also startup companies start building that. I just want to say thank you to everybody. You know. All right. That was my interview with Replit CEO Amjad Massad and Hugging Face CEO Clement DeLong. Now we're going to go into my conversation with Adept CEO David Luan and Greylock partner Sam Motometti. David Luan, founder of Adept, former OpenAI, former Google, Sam Motometti, Greylock investor, a board member at Adept, I believe, Snorkel, Cresta, Greylock's also an investor, and Tome, super excited. Let's start with Adept, right? Can you just explain the product to people, right? I mean, this is not open for public release. In terms of my own thinking, I, I feel like we have this list of like foundation models. Do you put yourself in the foundation model category because you have a little bit of a different focus? If you could just walk people through that, I think that would be super helpful. 
Yeah, totally. So for Adept, we're training our own foundation model, but we're not duking it out with the like OpenAI and Anthropics of the world that are sort of training LLMs or increasingly now these like multimodal based models that are sort of like general web stuff. I think that's going to be a really interesting space because people are going to like increasingly fight to have like more and more fungible like models that are going to be doing similar capabilities in that area. What we're doing at Adept is we're actually working on training a model that can do anything a human can do on a computer. So the goal is like teach this one neural network like how to use all software, how to use all different tools that like someone on the machine would use every day. And ours is like specifically focused on making it really good for knowledge workers. And so, I mean, what was appealing to you? Like, how do you assess these companies? I mean, it feels like there's so many hot AI startups right now. Like, what's the method here? Or like, what did you see in Adept? I'll start with Adept and then maybe talk more generally. So, you know, I think Adept for us was a very, very easy decision. Like, if you take a step back, we believe one of the largest opportunities in software is to build usable general intelligence. And the way that expresses itself as a product is a co-pilot for every knowledge worker. That makes us 10 times more efficient and 10 times more effective. And we think to do that, you have to build a vertically integrated company. You have to build a multimodal model that understands how to learn from humans and then can operate across all software tools. And then you have to build all of the scaffolding that's required to actually operate that in real-world enterprise environments. And that's exactly what Adept is doing. And David and his team are one of a very, very small set of people who actually have the operational understanding of how to scale these models from scratch. And combined with that, they're extremely commercial and customer-oriented. So Adept was a very easy decision for us, and we're fortunate that David selected us to be his partner. More generally, Eric, I think the answer varies quite a bit based on the layer of the stack that you're operating at. So like, we broadly think of it as applications and infrastructure. I talked about Adept as one example. But in general, when we look at the application layer, it's like the basics of software investing. You know, People talk about these AI companies like they're these magical creatures where different rules apply. And it's just not the case, right? Like, we look for companies that are focused on very specific customer problems, have a point of view on how they're going to own a valuable end user workflow, and where there's some gravity to the data that they're training on or operating on. And when we find those things, we get really excited to invest. But if you're just building a thin layer and you don't have any of those things, like, it's not something that's going to be a fit for us. And so what's the state of play in, with Adept today, like, in terms of customers, like, it's in what you call it in beta and like what can people do and like what are obviously part of the dream is that the use cases are sort of unlimited in terms of you know anything a human can interact with a computer with graphically but what do you see people sort of putting into use for so right now we're at a point where we've got a bunch of really cool enterprise partners that are really excited about Adept and working together on that. So we're working together with places like Workday and Atlassian and one more that we're going to sign and announce soon and Microsoft and some others. And so like basically what works really well with Adept right now is like, you know, if a human can do the thing on their computer and like a human can show the Adept model how a particular thing is done, we can just feed that into training and then now Adept will be able to do that again on Well, on like anything. an example that was given to me, I think this is real, is like, Redfin? or Yeah, that was kind of our hello world thing. It's kind of funny. People are adopting Redfin as like the hello world browser control thing that they want to demonstrate. But like, I think a really simple example is like, if you go find a bunch of LinkedIn's for someone that you want to hire for like a job posting and say like, okay, now move all these people over to Greenhouse or like add them all to Salesforce as a new lead and like start a campaign. And you can put these down in text. And because a model has learned, it's seen a lot of interactions with Salesforce. It's seen a lot of interactions with like general things on the web. And it has this context to be able to shuffle information around. It can do all sorts of stuff like that. But I think this is kind of the like, early table stake stuff. Like it's gonna be really helpful to knowledge workers who spend a lot of time like doing tedious stuff on their computer all day to like already have this level of capability. But I think where things get really exciting is when you like level up the like abstraction 
that you could do with models like this, right? Like maybe instead of just like doing that level of thing, maybe it's like just build me a whole financial model or like create a part for me in CAD and like optimize the hell out of it with a simulator. Like these are all things you should be able to do as the model sees more and more interactions between humans and computers. You know, OpenAI came out with plugins and my understanding is there's a sense that like couldn't a company just like build a plugin instead of actually going through this like graphical sort of thought process. Just like help us understand why you think your approach is superior to like language based plus plugin. I think one giant part is just looking at the success of things like Siri and like Google Home and stuff like that. Those are very like language in, language out interfaces. I think like there's a reason why we only trust them with a very limited set of things. It's because for the most part, these giant models are not yet reliable, right? Like for the end user, like you want to be able to like, like one, there's like a tremendous amount of richness in existing interfaces that have already been created, right? Like it's the best way to consume content. It's the best way to see a lot of like visual stuff, right? And similarly, like because Adept does the thing for you on your computer, you have a high amount of trust that it's actually like instead of it just spitting out oh the answer is 42 right you can actually see you like play it back you can see like the moves that it made exactly yeah so i wish that like we could just like show some people right now but like what it does is it like just actuates your actual machine to go get that and do i like just does it watch me do the activity and then it starts building from there you can do that so we're working on a thing where you just hit the record button and you show adapt to workflow and then when you hit stop record you're like i now go do this for these like next 16 things that i want to go do the same thing on and so could it do like a spreadsheet level task like that? Or? Yeah, it works on spreadsheets and like other key knowledge worker tools. What's the Greylock relationship with OpenAI right now? Or like, I mean, obviously Reed, you know, was so early. He was on the board. He just stepped off the board. I interviewed him on my podcast. I mean, you all are investing super aggressively in these companies. I mean, this clearly competes directly with OpenAI. Like what's, what's the relationship and like what have you all learned from that? Like working with them. Yeah, as you point out, my partner Reed Hoffman was an early investor in OpenAI in the nonprofit foundation, was on the board until recently. At Greylock, we've been investing in AI for over a decade now, both at the application layer and the infrastructure layer. We're close to the OpenAI folks. We have a ton of respect for what they've done. A lot of our companies are partners with them in different ways. And at the same time, we believe AI is going to transform everything around how we work and live. And we're investing, you know, with that thesis in mind. You know, I feel like with Adept, I mean, people read the headlines and they're here to sort of hear the headlines. Like, you know, the information had the story about some of your co-founders leaving. I think they've raised money from Thrive. Like, what's the backstory there? What's that mean for Adept? So I think this era of AI is like the period where I'm most excited about because I feel like, you know, for a long time we were just working on foundations, right? And then 2012 happened, we got AlexNet, and then 2017 we had Transformers. But like, it was this era from like, like nothing worked at all to this era where like, it felt very much artisan. It was like you and your three best friends could write a research paper that changes the world. And like that kind of became the dominant mode of AI progress. And I think once Transformer came out, we kind of had a lot of the core building blocks, right? Like the transistor has been invented. Like it's now really time to go build everything on top. And I like that line. Yeah. Like your belief is like the core technology has been figured out. There's still a tremendous amount of research that needs to be done, but like the philosophy behind the depth, I think is different from like what my old teammates were doing and also what AI labs that are doing research are doing is like everything we do is ultimately in service of building this thing that everybody will use every day at work. And so there's plenty of problems, like a lot of offline reinforcement learning problems that we're working on solving. And like we do tons of research, but it always flows back. And the, from the like subtext here is that the people who left were more research focused and you Much see more bottom up. Yeah. Bottom up research, like very classic Google brain type 
thing. And I think tremendous respect for like being able to do, to, to go do that really well. But if you go think about like we've entered the industrialization age of AI, like it's now time to build factories. Like that's the attitude. I'm curious across your other companies, like I framed up this tension from the beginning, like foundation models versus research companies versus like product companies. Do you have pure product companies? I mean, obviously David has so much experience himself at OpenAI and Google and is very technical, but I'm curious, like would Greylock invest in a pure product company and how do you think of those types of companies? Yeah, absolutely. I, I assume what you mean by pure product. Is I know. More, yeah, I know. It's like yeah. a very. It's you know. You, you know. The, I mean, the sort of wrapper. Like, could you see a wrapper business being a successful startup investment? Yeah, I think it's very use case and vertical specific. I'll give you a general framing for how I think about it, which is. One of the questions we debate internally is where does AI turbocharge existing companies and existing workflows, and where is it a window for new companies to get built? So the lens I use is if you're going after a workflow that's already owned by somebody, and the way that AI incorporates into that workflow doesn't lead to a profound shift in the workflow, it fits more in the turbocharge model. So writing's a great example, right? Like It turns out writing assistance is a great use case for AI. Notion, Google Docs, and the rest have amazing editor experiences, and they can integrate AI in and offer those superpowers to their users without needing a completely dramatically different workflow. I'll contrast that with, like I saw Chris from Runway here earlier today, and you know what Chris is doing around video and content creation, sure, Adobe can like staple on text-to-asset creation onto their products, but he's reimagining that workflow from scratch for an AI-first world centered around a natural language interface. And the product and experience feels completely different. Or like sometimes when people think of Adept, they think of, okay, RPA vendors, like UiPath and Automation right, yeah, and the rest. Thought that. Explain that. Like, I, I think people would like that disambiguation. Yeah, I mean, if you think about kind of the product mandate of we're going to go automate a bunch of work and make people more efficient, and you ask who else has a similar product mandate, the RPA robotic process automation category has such a mandate. But if you go look at UiPath and the entire approach of deploying bots on these deterministic processes that are extremely brittle and not end-user facing, and you compare that to the ergonomics and robustness of something like Adept that's powered by a natural language interface and can operate across different modalities with the end-user in the loop, it's like a dramatically different workflow. And so it's very obvious to us why that's a new company versus an existing company. So we think about that lens when we evaluate application layer opportunities. We have invested in tons of application layer companies. You mentioned Tome and Cresta as other examples. But both of those companies kind of fit into that framework. Great. I'm curious about OpenAI and like the evolution we've seen with the company. I mean, in particular, like the shift from nonprofit to like for profit. I'm curious, like, had that transition already happened when you were at OpenAI or what cultural evolution like have you watched? Did you watch while you were there? I think the company changed dramatically. So I joined in 2017 to run engineering when there was only 35 people. Wow. And it was tiny, very, very early days. Like teams hadn't really yet been like clearly pulled out of the ether. And I think like honestly during that time, like it was not really clear what our unique spot in the world was going to be. You know, like we had some great researchers. We were kind of doing some like Google Brainy style work, but it was like, okay, is this just Google Brain SF? Like it really was never meant to be that, right? And so I think what we did a really good job of was we, I think, realize one of the first places to realize that AI was changing, like leaving this like you and your three best friends write a paper world and really entering the age of like 
when most ideas just start default working to like the 60 to 70% level, what you really want to do is you want to go build a full research plus engineering team to swing for the fences on the like technical outcome, not the scientific novelty. And so I think like that was sort of like phase one. I think that's what led to like a lot of early breakthroughs on the OpenAI side, including like the robot hand work and, the, and some of the early GPT work as well. But I think from there on out, once the industrialization thing started staring us in the face more and more, like resourcing was going to be really, really important. And I think that like that was behind a resourcing, lot of Resourcing, the- a.k.a. getting the money to found... Like compute. Sending checks to Jensen. Yeah, really. <laughs> so like that's the thing that you really, really had to do. But then we got to this new era where I think that people, I'm sure everybody in the audience is fully realizing now, but like it's my strong belief that like if you want to build AGI, regardless of how you define it, you need users and you need humans in the loop. And I think that now actually building a product company is the critical path to getting to general intelligence. Do you trust OpenAI still? Or do you do you have like faith in them as sort of the carrier for this like huge cultural moment or I mean <laughs> I don't want to talk about the letter too much but there's clearly anxiety with this pause idea like do you think OpenAI they're good stewards of this future well I think what's really interesting is that so just due to how neural net scaling laws work right like everybody's seeing this stuff like our rule of thumb that we've learned from training large models at OpenAI and also at Google is you kind of need to be like two doublings ahead. If you hold everything else constant, like data set, architecture, all that good stuff, literally all you're fighting on is scale, you kind of have to be two doublings ahead to be like materially more, to, for the model to feel materially more brilliant. And so I think this is both a blessing and a curse. And like when I was running the Google large models effort, I literally had a presentation where I was like, this is how we're going to win, this is also how we're going to get screwed. Because and you're saying other people can catch up and they're not as far ahead as we believe? Because you don't, need, you don't need orders of magnitude more resources, right? Because if you're Within a 4x factor, your models seem, seem, if holding all else similar, like fairly similar in terms of how smart they are. And so I think what we're, I think what this year is really going to show us is just proliferation. Like, I think proliferation is the name of the game. And when proliferation is the name of the game, then like exactly what the front runner does doesn't necessarily steer the direction of the field as much as we think it like, would. This is a very competitive situation. Lots of people can catch up. Is that, that's fundamentally what you're saying. Also, just this amazing energy that we're seeing from the open source community. Like, right. like good stuff is happening. Like, we're like, it's also, we're starting to see this thing where, like, of course, the thing we care about most, and I'm just talking about LMs, not so much about Adept, but, like, for LMs, right, like, you, the tasks people are excited about are, like, higher and higher level ones, right? But, like, a lot of these, like, lower level tasks on language we're starting to see some saturation on the models. And I think that process is only going to increase. So there will just be more things people can reach for. And I think the fact that it's now in the hands of the community means that the pace of progress is just going to keep on speeding up. Are you seeing the rest of your portfolio, like non-generative AI companies pivot in? And like, what advice are you giving people in terms of just like embracing this moment? And I don't know. Yeah. Are you seeing people where it's a mistake to go in because yeah, it's not their specialty? Yeah, I'd say most of our portfolio, every single board meeting, there's a conversation around, should we be doing something around generative AI? Now, newcomers having that kind of... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the lens of that conversation is, how does it help us deepen the customer value we're driving, right? And so I'll give you an example. I'm on the board of a company called Apiro. It's an application security company. And so one of the things they do is they identify and prioritize vulnerabilities in code. Six months ago, we realized that we could leverage a bunch of the advancements in things like Codex to go beyond just vulnerability identification to automatically generating code to solve and remediate vulnerabilities. So that's an example of a company that didn't start as a generative AI company, 
owns a really valuable end user workflow, and then finds a way to turbocharge their customer value leveraging these models. Most of our enterprise-oriented companies have some story like that, but at the same time, like, you know, I, I think it's important not to try to force it onto your product if it doesn't naturally help you further your customer value mission. I haven't talked a lot about like jobs today or job replacement through AI, though that's clearly on a lot of people's minds. And I, I feel like even though I don't know that Adept would be unique in sort of you know, the threat to some people's jobs, I think the model where it's like, we can watch the worker, you do this thing, we figure out how to do it, we can do it, like, it feels like a little scarier to me. What do you say to people who worry about the job replacement? I'm sure you've thought about this at every company you've been at, but what's your thinking on the state of AI replacing people's quality jobs? Honestly, I think it's something that I think about a lot. I think it's definitely something that I am concerned about. I think that's actually a big part of like, look, like the adept mission is not actually, and I think it's going to be really difficult to have all of these models literally replace jobs. I think what's more likely is I think it's just going to give all knowledge workers a higher level interface. So that instead of spending like for a salesperson, right, instead of spending like 30% of your week like dealing with updating Salesforce, you spend 1% of your week asking Adept to just do that for you, and you spend 99% of the time talking to customers, which is like really why you're doing this job to begin with. Like, I think that's going to be the story that's going to play out. It's going to be really much more about the degree to which the Industrial Revolution took away like the need to go do a lot of pure hands-on work that could be sped up. Like, I think it's just going to take some of the like, most tedious parts of everyone's job, the bottom part, out. Do you, do you think it's mostly disruptive to white-collar work at this point, or like... Yeah, are there like factory tasks that you you're able to do? For the most part, what we're doing because it's like really leverage for knowledge workers, we do the low level stuff of the high, but the high level stuff is really all handled by like like what should we do and why and how do I work with humans? Part is like that's going to be fundamentally human for a really really long time. The part that we're doing is like handling like clicks and presses and types and form fills and like all that tedious crap that like. I don't think so if really I, signed if up I want to get Taylor Swift tickets, I could have used this. Um, webs- it sounds like, yeah, ticket scalpers will love this product. I mean, the, the positioning of, like, the big tech companies or, like, I mean, any views on, like, I mean, it seems like Microsoft is so so strong here, but, like, any views on where Apple or Facebook are? And also just, like, related to that, like, how you're advising your startups to strike deals for like long-term like compute sort of contracts? Yeah, it's a good question. So I, I think your observation is correct, where if you look at the playing field today, you'd give Microsoft a ton of credit, Google's number two. There are others as well, right? Like Oracle's playing an important role as well. And then it's actually surprising to us, some of the names you mentioned are kind of nowhere to be found. And so I would expect we see them realize that they're behind and make moves to catch up. But to date, those three companies have been the best to partner with. And we have different companies in our portfolio. Microsoft, Google, Oracle. Yeah, that's right. On the you, cloud side. And, I mean, you have a number, like, Workspace is a user of your product? Or, like, what, yeah, what are, what's your sort of partnership strategy? I think right now, a lot of companies that make software tools sort of are in a really interesting moment where I think there's the ability for them to offer something to end users that's like a way easier way to go use the same thing while still letting experts like be fully functional in their software. Right? Like people who like know and love, I don't know, just choose an example, right? Something like, like Workday, like they know how to go get everything done, right? But I think at the same time, for people who may not know how to use, use the software as well, I think having something like Adept that makes it possible for them to just put in language what they need to get done in the tool gives a lot of leverage to the end user and cuts down the need for the L&D budget, right? And so I think that has made it natural for us to go work with a lot of companies that way. I'm going to open this up in a second. I just want to go back to an earlier question in that I feel like I asked you whether you trust OpenAI, 
And the answer was somewhat, everybody else will be able to catch up. And yeah, is that the right inference that in some ways your answer was not yes? So I think on that in particular, I think OpenAI, like I spent a ton of time at OpenAI helping build the safety team and the policy team, which ended up rolling up to me. So really, really enjoy a lot of the folks who are steering that ship over there. I think at the end of the day, like though, I still believe like most importantly that like this is still really early, weirdly enough, in the story of AI. And I think that there's a lot that's going to happen when the rubber hits the road on the stuff. And I actually think that this is going to be a disproportionate amount of influence that the community is going to have in terms of what happens. Any questions? Great. Yep. An earlier panelist talked about helpful, honest, and harmless being kind of the three pillars of, Anthropic. Con yeah, of constitutional AI. If you had to rate each of those where we are today on a scale of one to 10, where would you put it? I think that helpful is an intent and I think all the models intend to be helpful. I think the degree to which they're actually helpful it's still very early. I mean, it's just like the action space for AI systems should be such that they can help you with a lot more stuff than writing text. And I think we now see new signs of people calling APIs. I think that's a really great direction. I think that as a whole, for the other two parts, they really come from learning from human feedback. And I think that this is still relatively under tapped. Right? The old way we used to train models is we like hit scale until something broke, and then we, we put it out there. But I think that like being able to learn from, learn from users to like follow human preferences is going to close a lot of the gap on the latter two. You spent like a year at Google, right? Or yeah, after OpenAI. There's definitely like a meme online that it's like OpenAI, they're there till like 3 a.m. like grinding it out and like Google, you know, it's like the show Silicon Valley like on the roof. I don't know. How, how true is that? So at OpenAI, we definitely had our nine to fives. We also had our people who just like really pushed hard. I would say at Google, there was also some of the latter, but definitely the ratio is slightly different. I was there during peak COVID though. Oh, okay. So it's hard to tell over... And any takeaways on sort of the, mer you know, like, it seems like Google Brain, there's sort of a merger within the organizations within Google. Do you think that's significant? So for a long time, I always said that that would be the sign that Google is really mobilizing. <laughs> They're awake. <laughs> and, yeah. and it's happened. Right. As far as, I mean, I don't have any inside information on right. that, but from what I can tell, like, I think that was a really big, I think that's, that's just like, that's where, that's where the stuff needs to go. Any other questions? Great. Yep. I'm a founder. It seems kind of blindingly obvious that we're moving into a new paradigm where like the cloud native companies are now going to be competing with like these kind of new AI native companies. And can you kind of unpack what you spoke about with Workday, where you're offering them kind of an escape path to not be displaced by an AI native version? Like to what degree is that kind of the core? Would you kind of frame that as the core opportunity that you're working on? And can you talk more specifically about like what it's going to take for these companies that have built been built natively into the cloud to kind of compete in this new paradigm? I think Sam's a much better person to comment on. I'll say one quick thing, which is I think that like a lot of the opportunities right now come from which things should be unbundled because of AI and which things should be bundled because of AI. And I think that for like working with Workday, for example, it's a perfect example of where the like product shape I think is actually very good. And so as a result, like working together makes a lot of sense. But I think in other areas, I think vertical SaaS, that's AI first, due to bundling or unbundling could do really well. Yeah, and the only thing I'd add to that is, like, the lens I use is where is their real gravity? So if you take something like Workday, there's immense gravity in the data and the fact that they're a system of record for your employees. And then the opportunity for AI is to reimagine the workflows and interfaces on top of that gravity. And, like, David was alluding to this, but I think it's a more general point. Most people think of AI, they think, oh, I'm going to make people who know how to do something more efficient. And that's definitely a big part of it. 
it also like is a much more elegant and accessible interface for a lot of workflows. And so what actually ends up happening is there's a lot of latent demand for people who want to be able to operate on these systems but who can't because they don't understand or don't have the sophistication or training to use them in their current form. But they know how to talk to a natural language interface-oriented assistant who can help them use Workday or Sheets or whatever. And so I think it ends up also expanding the TAM of people who can interact with these systems. Do you think that companies that build their cost structures natively in an AI world are just going to blow away? Do you think, I guess flipping that, do you think companies that are, have built their cost structures in a cloud-native world will be able to compete with companies that have built their cost structures AI first? I don't fully know what you mean by cost structure, but I would say like, I think there's going to be a lot of variance around whether or not companies are able, like cloud-native companies will be able to compete in an AI-native world versus not. It's very company-specific. Great. Well, we've had our transistor moment already in AI, which is pretty crazy to think about. All right. Thanks. Thanks very much. Thanks. Yep. Goodbye. All right. That's our episode. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Eric Newcomer. These talks were from the Cerebral Valley AI Summit that I hosted with Volley, a voice AI game company. I want to shout out Samsung Next, Oracle, and NVIDIA. Our theme music is from Young Chomsky. Thanks so much to Tommy Heron for editing all these episodes and our YouTube videos. And finally, shout out to Riley Kinsella, my chief of staff, for all his help and support on this. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on the Newcomer Podcast. You can like, comment, subscribe on YouTube where we're posting a bunch more interviews from the Cerebral Valley AI Summit and follow us on our newsletter at newcomer.co. Thanks so much.